Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. This week, we're wrapping up Tokyo with a fun chat with the gold medal winning duo of Brad Snyder and Greg Billington. Brad, who lost his vision after stepping in an IED in Afghanistan back in 2011, became the first U.S. man to win gold in triathlon in either the Olympics or Paralympics. And he did it after only starting triathlon three years ago. Now, Greg, a 2016 Olympian, served as his guide in that race and talks to us about what it took to, you know, make history. The two of them tell us how they worked together, the training that went into the improbable win, and how they were both back at work and back at school this week. Just back to regular life and back to business. Their insight is priceless, and you can tell that they have a lot of fun. Now, before that, though, we hear from Laura Sedol, fresh off her second place at Challenge Roth and a little sleep deprived. She tells us what it is that makes Roth so special. And me and her try to figure out why so many athletes are making so many last minute changes to their race plans. What can we actually expect at 70.3 Worlds next week? All of that after this short break. Power your next adventure with Outside Plus. Our Outside Plus membership gives you access not just to exclusive triathlete content, but to content across all our network brands like Backpacker, Velo News, Outside Magazine, and Trail Runner. With an annual membership, you get two magazine subscriptions, two Velo Press books, a library of resources like yoga journal meditation classes and clean eating meal plans, gear and event discounts, access to Gaia GPS dozens of training plans through today's plan software and a free finisher picks package each year all for just $99. This is the world's best resource for training, nutrition, know-how and how to join at triathlete.com backslash outside plus that's outside P L U S one word.com. All right, we're back with Laura Sidal. Sid is with us after taking second at Challenge Roth. So you haven't <laughs> slept in days, but apparently you weren't partying. You were just... I know. Not- it's so disappointing. Well, um, I'm now back in Girona, so I got back this afternoon. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. So flying in from Tokyo, like getting into Roth on Wednesday and then into the race. And then, yeah, haven't really slept for the last few days. Like I actually slept not too bad the day before the race, which is quite unusual. Um but the night after the race, I think I got like two hours sleep and then I was in that wired, wide awake state when you've just got so much caffeine and sugar through your body and that sort of thing. Um, like we went, obviously went down and had the finish line party and watched the last finishes come in, um, and, but then got home pretty early. And then the next night is normally like the big after party, but obviously didn't have it this year with covid so just a few of us actually went out for dinner which was really nice very civilized but i was designated driver which i was like hang on a minute how does this work um and then there was like back home by like you know 11 or just before midnight i think i said to belinda granger i think it'll be the first time in the history of roth after party that she's made it home before midnight actually before 4am normally for her but before midnight even and she hasn't woken up with a hangover like the next day. <laughs> so, yeah. But I've yeah. only got two weeks off. So hopefully I'll get a bit of a chance to chill out <laughs> and celebrate now. I'm going to say Ross obviously known for 
like massive crowds, right? Yeah. Like the spectators and the party and the craziness. But this year it was like half capacity yeah. and it was like a slightly different course. So, I mean, is it the same? Like is coming in second there still like a big deal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say yes. <laughs> if it was anyone else, I'd be like, no, <laughs> come on. Um, look, it was, yeah, you know, obviously in, in normal years, it's absolutely mannequin wrath. It's like so many people, it's five to 10 people deep along parts of the course, along the swim star, um, and obviously they advise, you know, there were less entrance into it so they could manage that. Um, and they advise people not to come and spectate, but please watch it online. Uh, but they can't actually stop people. And the locals in Germany, the locals in Roth and Bavaria, they just love the event so much. And I think with the the change in bike course, it actually allowed some of the regions and the villages and the towns in Roth that don't normally get a chance the race doesn't normally go through their town, but it did this year. So they could get out and they wanted to get out and they were on the street with drums and drinking their beers and the tables were all <laughs> out. And that's the thing in usual Roth fashion. But it was definitely there were less there were less spectators on the whole around uh, on the whole around the course. And like the finish line, the stadium is normally sort of 10,000 people by the end of the night and it's just this like cauldron of energy and electricity and it's amazing it was still amazing but they had limited the number in the stadium so I think it was only like 1500 um still a great atmosphere but yeah definitely less people around understandably than the normal Hmm. but yeah and you know things like at the swim start the swim start so iconic again it's it's in a canal and you normally get the the bridge just over the start over the road is normally again like sort of four or five people deep and it's packed and either side of the canal is just like packs and lined and lined with people and what they've done this year to try and stop people coming down is they'd actually put really big um banners and barriers up with the the dative uh dative logo and that sort of thing and there were all the other sponsor logos and hep logo up to sort of stop people congregating in those areas again people did come down and they would but they were just more spread out along the bank i guess this time right so yeah what is it that makes i mean everyone i always i want to do the race last year i want to do it this year covid and like and everyone always says like you have to do this what is it that makes it makes it such a thing do you know what? I, the Germans just love triathlon. Like they <laughs> absolutely, any German racing is like a hero when they're on the start line. Um, obviously they had a great, great day on at the weekend with Annie Howe right, and Patrick Annie... Leierwingen because both being German. So that was amazing mm-hmm. for them. But the Germans just love it and you genuinely feel welcome there and they want you there. Like you can be riding through the the course and you go through this tiny little town. It's just a cluster of houses and there might be a little bakery, but it's all decorated with challenge Roth paraphernalia. And if you stop, the locals want to talk to you and it's all about the race and it's there's a massive volunteer network. You know, they almost have to turn people away from volunteering because mm. they have so many people. And it's a big race that's built on homestay. So Roth has no accommodation or it, I think it's now got one hotel, which was built a few years ago. But before that, there was no accommodation in Roth. Um, and there are hotels sort of further out, but the essence of the race was built around like athletes, media, partners, anyone that you stay at a homestay, you stay with a local family and Roth. And so it's just got this incredible community family feel. And 
you know, I think Felix Volshofer, um, Alice, his mum and Catherine, his sister, who who run the event, they it's such a family event. They have a fantastic team. Like Felix was at the start, the um, the gate of transition on race morning, welcoming every single athlete into transition. He is on the back of a motorbike during the race and he goes around and shakes the hand of every single volunteer that's out there. Right. Um, you know, they, they put a lot, they have a big after party, which is around the volunteers and it's almost like the pros go, but it's, it's to get the pros in front of the volunteers because the volunteers have been out there all day and they might've just seen them whizzing past and it's to say thank you. And there's just this, yeah, it's just as well as that, the swim course is special. It's magic. The atmosphere, the bike course is fast, but it's not as flat. It's not flat. I, people do think it's flat. It is definitely not flat. Um, and, and it's just got this iconic, you know, they run along the canal and things like that. Um, but I think it's the local people and they just make it so special because they really genuinely, it's nice to go to a race and they want the race in the area. <laughs> like right, you're, you're, right, right. You know, you're not forced off the road kind of thing. You're, you're, they really do welcome you there. It uh, we obviously saw a bunch of a handful of people go from Collins Cup straight to Roth. Uh, someone to Switzerland. There's a lot of like last minute race. Yes, very annoying changes happening right now. <laughs> yeah, where like people are showing up here, they're showing up there. Or they're like, oh, Kona got canceled, so I jumped into Switzerland last minute. Or I, as we were just talking about, we now are seeing uh, they're not on the start list yet, but rumor is a number of people going to show up in California in October since Kona is not going to be happening. Um. Rumor is, yeah. I mean, Jan hinted he's going yeah. to. He's doing going a to race up. in the U.S. Yeah, a, yeah. In the U.S. Um, and it's only that or Chattanooga. So it's like it's very. I mean, pros are always like this, but I feel like it's even more last minute right now, where people are like super changing their plans. Yeah, I think. Well, so Challenge Family have they don't have the you. So normally with Ironman races, you've got a cutoff for the pros that's right. three weeks before the event. Challenge family don't have that. So you can actually, I remember the other year I came second at Challenge Roth, Daniela Reef <laughs> entered like three days before the race. And then um, this year I came second and Annie Haug entered a week before the race. <laughs> <laughs> Both current world champions. Anyway, um, not bitter at all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Challenge family don't have a strict cutoff. So you can right. enter pretty late on their races. Um, obviously Ironman do normally have that three week cutoff, but I think they've been pretty lenient with it this year due because of all the restrictions. So, yeah. And I think just people are just quite still unsure about right. what to do. And now that Kona has been postponed to potentially February and we, we're still not sure if that's going to happen. I think people are sort of still a bit undecided whether they go, well, I'm kind of semi trained and semi fit on that progression to Kona. So do I, push on, make the most of it, jump in a couple of races before the end of the year to, to race, because race, that's what it meant to do. Or do I just shut it down now, back off for a bit and and go again? And there's just still, I think people are still sort of feeling out other start lists. And you've obviously right. as well got, you know, some of the Olympic distance athletes coming off the back of, you know, the Olympics and some of them are stepping into, stepping up to a half distance and People are trying to have the match-offs that they want to prove who's bigger than who because we haven't got those, like, you know, we haven't got Kona to do that. So they're trying to find those other races. So, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we were just talking about, so 70.3 Worlds is next weekend. Uh, Startless went out a couple of days ago, and I'm kind of trying to put, and I've been trying to line up interviews for next week, and I thought, like, everyone's going to show up in, in St. George, and now I'm starting to hear, like, some people being like, oh, actually, I'm pulling out, and some of them are tired because they were, you know, Tokyo and all that. 
And then some of them, though, they're like, oh, I'm pulling out to focus on Chattanooga or California, which I was sort of like, why? Like, yeah. I don't totally understand. Yeah. It's, you know, when you said that, that there are people pulling out of 70.3 worlds, I was kind of really surprised because I think like you, I thought everyone would have suddenly jumped in on on that race as the big race of the year because with Kona being postponed. Right. But I guess, you know, yes, there's not been that much racing, but there has still been racing. And the racing that has happened has been really high standard. And I think people have like been jumping into races, traveling a lot all over the world and actually probably have got to the end of the year ago with all the additional stress of that uncertainty over the past 12, 18 months, actually, yeah, we are pretty tired and may, you know, you look at someone like mm-hmm. Taylor Nib and I'm, I'm totally putting words in her mouth at this point, you know, what did she do? The Olympics two weeks later did Boulder 70.3, then flew to Canada and did um, the short Montreal, and, mix, Edmonton, Montreal yeah. and then Edmonton and then, flew to Europe and did Collins Cup. So I am not surprised if she's like, just like, well, I just need to take a step back. Like, yes, yeah, she's young and can keep going, but. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think she's waiting to see how she feels. She has not yeah. pulled out to be clear. She's waiting to see how uh, she feels. And I think, but then, yeah, but some people then, have pulled or not pulled out, but aren't even like Flora's not doing it. She's not on the start list. Oh, you see, that was interesting. Yeah. I Well, I mean, I can, understand from her like maybe the intention was to do it but i am pretty sure she's had a whirlwind very of, tired <laughs> yeah i think she's very like just from sponsor commit i mean you know she traveled to canada as well um but now i think i saw that she's off to like the u.s open and stuff like that right. so she's you know she's relishing what she's just achieved and full credit to her you know i probably would want to sort of like turn around and make the most of that you know she spent she said five years with the pressure on to get that olympic gold now just like take a few months to to soak it all in and 70.3 worlds will be there for her in plenty of years time sort of thing. Right. I think maybe the other thing that people are trying to second guess is do people now use fitness to do a full, an Ironman in October, November to qualify for, to qualify early effectively for October, 2022. So that if Kona, 2020 or 2021 now happens Happens in in February February, they don't have to do a a, another Iron Man in between the February Kona and the October Kona to qualify so maybe Mm -hmm. they're thinking let's try and bank a race now get that early qualification to October then we're just doing February and October don't have to do anything else um yeah it's an interesting question to do there's definitely some pros, obviously, yes, who are trying to figure out the whole scheduling and the like, what do I focus on? What do I prioritize? How do I make this all fit? To your point of there's people also trying to chase matchups. For sure, once Jan hinted that he's going to be uh, in California, there are some people who are uh, rearranging their schedules. Yeah. To, like, the, the other thing that maybe some of the pros are doing, and I don't think this is the case, but maybe come the end of the year, it is the PT, you know, the, the pros get their payment on ranking from the pto so maybe and i don't think this is the case but maybe there's some of them trying to chase those few final fast points or something to get a better ranking and a bit more money paid out at the end of the year to make a difference don't know there were some people obviously who also skipped collins cup kind of and there were you know various reasons behind the scenes whatever some people were hurt and some people were sick but some people skipped it to focus on kona prep and then kona was canceled like three days later yeah yeah, that hurt probably. Probably. It's also a risk of putting all your eggs in one basket these days, still with COVID and everything. Totally. Totally. And I think things are like changing, you know, like 
over in Europe, it seems like we're sort of getting to that livable, manageable levels. But who knows, once we get more into winter, um, if numbers are going to spike and that's going to affect things again. You know, Australia and New Zealand are still going through lockdowns and no one can get in or out. And then I keep hearing like resurges of of numbers and stuff in the US. And is that, you know, yeah, I mean, (laughs) hence why, you know, hence why Kona was postponed because of the situation. So um, it's still so hard to kind of, I think that's why people are just really unsure still of what they're happening and then maybe just jumping on opportunities when they can. Yeah. So 70.3 Worlds next weekend. Um, I Obviously, we still have to see how things shake out, but my picks are Daniela winning and then, you know, Taylor, she does it. Lucy and Emma Pallant Brown is like the podium. And then I think the men's race is going to be a Norwegian race. Yeah. I think Gustav Eden comes out on top, though. I really, yeah. I really do. I think. Yeah. I think I have to, I haven't, if I admit, I haven't actually looked at the start list yet. I've had a few other things on my head, mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the world did not exist after until like Sunday, the 5th of September. Um, I do think. You know, Daniela didn't have a great race at the Collins Cup, but we know she was she was sick. She'd had a, yeah, a beating or something, and various, but she them. jumped back at exactly <laughs> Ironman Switzerland. Um, she's always a you know a contender. You can never really write her off. Um, I think Emma Pallant is the kind of you, you kind of say dark horse, but she's not a dark horse. But I think like just she is the inform athlete. I think at the moment. Um, I think it'd be fun. It'd be really exciting if Taylor Nib is on the start line. It's a shame for Flora Duffy isn't, but I don't think we'd probably see Flora at her best, maybe. Um, so it'd be great when she is ready to to challenge the seventy point three world. Um, I think Taylor would be if Taylor Nib's on the start line. Then, well, she'll be the one that I think they're all targeting. Actually, mm-hmm. if she's on the start line, yeah. Yeah, and um, and I do think the Norwegians on the men's side is yeah. going to come down to them. Word is Lionel, uh, it won't be starting. Um, he said he's going to yeah. focus on those Ironmans we were just talking about later in the year. Now that yeah. Jan's coming, um, yeah. So I do think that it kind of becomes it's a Norwegian affair. Norwegian but the other thing that it, you know it then leaves it open, like on the women's side as well. You've got some real big opportunities for some of the mm-hmm. the women who you know, top 10, top five to on their day right. snag, snag a podium spot sort of thing. Um, sure. You know, we can't write out Holly Lawrence. Yeah, you said, Lu- mm-hmm. you know, Lucy, I think we'll have a few things to prove. She's after that world title. She's not got one yet. You know, she's got, which <laughs> she is has crazy to be like to the athlete, about it. Right, who has like yeah. the most podium and no, and no championship title. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be super exciting, I think, anyway. Shame that maybe not everyone's going to be turning up there um, when we thought it would be sort of right. then the big race of the year. But I mean, it'll still be a great race, I think. And obviously, I think for the age groupers, it's going to be. I don't. I haven't seen the stats yet. I haven't like done the math um, on the start list, but I think it's going to be heavily American, like yeah, over fifty percent American. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we will be back next week. I'm trying to line up everything for 70.3 Worlds for next week and uh, and go go get some sleep, get some yeah. drinks and then some sleep. <laughs> yeah, I might. Uh, yeah, Actually, I've got like I'm on a lager at the moment. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right. We'll talk we'll to you. It. Talk to you later, Sid. Thanks, Kelly.
All right. This week, we're talking to the Paralympic gold medalist duo, Brad Snyder, Greg Billington. You guys won the VI race last week. And I was just talking to Brad. You guys have been on a victory tour since then. What kind of reception party? What do you do after you win gold? Oh, I'll let you start, Brad, on this one. My <laughs> victory tour uh, meant, I, meant I returned home to San Francisco. And on every work call this week, I've had uh, a huge amount of support from from Visa. So that's been that's been awesome. Uh-huh. That's awesome. Uh, our, my victory tour was, uh, it was really fun leaving the village. It was neat being in the, the, the USA house there with a lot of the different athletes from different sports, uh, we're all tracking each other. And so the second we came back, uh, from the, the race venue on Saturday, uh, team USA was, it was behind us and was really excited about that victory. And that kind of persisted over the next few days, uh, some fun inter- media interviews and, th- and things like that. But then, uh, the second I left Japan, the victory tour sort of came to a grinding halt. I am in a PhD program here at, at Princeton and um, I uh, got my guide dog back on Wednesday and did class all of yesterday. So it's kind of like right back into real life real fast. So, um, but that said, uh, a number of students, they ran something in the new school newspaper here. And so everyone was really excited about it. I, I, I was trying not to talk about it at all and, and people were real excited about it. So it was, uh, it was fun to see that people were tracking. Why were you trying not to talk about it? Um, I think, you know, uh, it, it's important to me that just for, for my credibility in the classroom to rest on my, my ability to engage with the material and, and mm-hmm. speak in the academic environment. And, uh, so I like to try to keep the two domains as separate as possible, but I mean, it was nice that everyone's really excited about Paralympic gold and that's an adjustment. I think what's really exciting about this go around, you know, I've been at this since London and, uh, London was tracked really well in the UK, uh, not so much in the United States. And then Rio was tracked better as far as uh, my personal network and things like that. But the the timing was off and the coverage wasn't great. Um, this this time around, uh, a lot of people were able to tune in. The coverage was great. It was live. Um, and then the kind of like the, uh, the 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 buzz around it has persisted since Saturday, and it's been really exciting. So it's markedly different than it was in the past. Um, that's been really fun to observe both within my, you know, my family and friends, but then also with, with the greater, you know, Team USA community across the United States. Yeah, it seemed like a lot. Um, I don't want to say like a bigger deal, but definitely a lot more people paying attention uh, this year than, than in previous Paralympics. Yeah, for sure. And it's very noticeable, which is really exciting, especially as we start to kind of build momentum towards Paris. And then uh, obviously, we're all really super excited about the LA games. Okay, so you have two more on your so you're gonna try and hit five games. Uh, uh, Well, I I don't want to speak for Greg, but we're (laughs) we're taking this one at a time. Uh, You know, probably earlier in the season, I was kind of thinking that this might be it. But we had so much fun uh together over the last six weeks getting ready for this race and obviously the race was uh was an incredible experience and i think we finished that thing thinking uh what's next and and how can we keep this going um i'm excited for the la games whether we're an athlete or not just having an olympic and paralympic games on home soil is just super exciting for anybody um if we can last that long and we can race here you know in la would be awesome but we're just going to take it one race at a time for you know the next season and the season after that and wherever it goes we'll go it'll go it's been hard not to build a lot of momentum when you have as much fun, I think, as we did over the past past eight weeks. That was a pretty remarkable experience. So I guess we should tell for people who don't know, obviously, um, the the visually impaired athletes race with a guide. Greg uh, has been your guide kind of over this last year. And you guys made some pretty big improvements 
you've said in the last six weeks, eight weeks, what did it take? I mean, one, what is it like, you know, that guide athlete relationship? And then two, what did it take over these last six, eight weeks to really go from, I mean, you started triathlon in 2018 and it's been a pretty steep learning curve. And then in the last couple months, it's been a very steep like improvement curve. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was substantial. And I think it, it, there are a handful of different things that were brought to bear. Um, one, you know, there's a, obviously a lot of skills involved in triathlon just broadly. And then there's a lot of specific skills involved in blind triathlon with the tandem involved, the tethered swimming, tethered running. Um, and there was a handful of, of kind of new skills that we took on uh, with Greg leading the, leading the charge. Uh, one of them being sort of a flying dismount. Up until uh, going with Greg, I had we'd always stopped the tandem in T2, got off the bike and unstraddled, and then ran through transition. Uh, Greg, uh, from from day one of him coming out to my house to for us to start getting ready to to guide together, we jumped into doing a, a flying dismount, which for me as a blind athlete on the back of the tandem is is terrifying to okay. jump off the bike when it's moving. It looks um, terrifying, so I've always wondered if it's terrifying. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you don't trust Especially me up there, Brad. The Oh no, I, I trust you implicitly, but it's still like jumping out of a jumping out of a plane kind of thing. So um we that so taking on those skills and not only being able to do those things, but do them well, uh really has unlocked some some special time there uh in, in transition, especially as we're competing against other athletes who have a little bit of vision, being able to mitigate that advantage as much as possible through transition has been real important. But the the biggest improvements have really come from uh, Greg giving me really outstanding advice and some coaching on how to improve my fitness just generally, uh, but then really um, how to be kind of targeted with with fitness. So an mm -hmm. example being one of the advantages that we need to have is getting off the line quickly and swim and uh, making sure we're not letting anyone draft and we're going to build a little bit of a gap in the water. Um, I haven't been able to do that super successfully in my career so far. But in the last handful of races, that's been a major differentiator. And Greg's helped us get off that line quickly, swim a really straight line to the buoys, uh, get around them real cleanly, and then come out of the water with a gap. And that's uh, something that's been huge. And then uh, he's also helped me conceive, uh, conceptualize my training a little bit better to have a little bit more power on the bike so we're not just immediately giving up that advantage, but being mm -hmm. able to hold that advantage, advantage through, the whole, through the whole bike. Um, Greg, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts too on what, what has, you know, how have our, what, what's, what's changed between when, where we started back before the Leeds race and then where we ended up in the season, what, what, what were the major differences as far as you see them? Oh, I mean, one major difference between Leeds and, and the Paralympic games was, uh, I remembered how many laps were on the bike course. So that was, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that was significant progress. And you, wait, you forgot how many laps were on the bike course in Leeds. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> you know, you know, sometimes, sometimes things change. You've been out of the game for a little while and, uh, you forget important things, but I mean, Brad's been on a, an impressive learning curve, I think, since he started with triathlon and I was happy that that was able to kind of continue when when we were working together and move from, from leads to our performance, obviously in, in Rio, I mean, in, in Tokyo, man, sometimes I, I go back a few years. Uh, <laughs> Brad is, you know, a fantastic swimmer. He brought that in from his swimming background. So it was awesome to be able to train with him. And I think one thing that we were able to do a lot of is just a lot of open water swimming practice. Um, and that was able to kind of help Brad be able to bring his incredible swimming talent a little bit more towards that mm. open water skill set. But I mean, from day one, I was super impressed with um, 
basically just help straight Brad swims. It's <laughs> it's like I barely barely have to do anything. Uh, we were able to kind of fine tune uh, how we corner around buoys in the water. Um, but then I think one of my favorite parts has just been how well we work together as a team, especially in the run. I think one yeah. of the biggest changes from Leeds is that was a very technical run course. It has a lot of kind of sweeping turns as well as hard 90s, hard 180s, um, and Tokyo did as well. But because okay. we've been able to work together kind of over the past few months, by the time that came around, we were, I felt really well connected. And Brad was able to kind of understand my cues, and I was able to know what cues were really helpful for Brad to both, uh, you know, have him run through that run course as efficiently as possible, but also keep mentally and physically on top of his game so that he felt kind of good the whole time. And I was able to spray a bunch of water on him throughout Tokyo. Too. So <laughs> I think working together over the past few months has made a lot of tiny, tiny changes that that eventually ended up with with a huge net impact. You guys went to Kona for, I mean, how much are you able to train together? I know that there was like a team camp in Kona kind of leading in, but for the most part, obviously, one of you is on the East Coast, one of you is on the West Coast. How much do you actually train together? I We've had a lot of interest kind of in, this, in the guide-athlete relationship this year. People are really curious how that works. How do you learn the cues? Kind of, do you just go out there and wing it? I, I'd say winging it is inadvisable and okay. <laughs> that's how, you know, things come, come undone quickly. I think uh, Greg was great about uh, when we first started to get together, he came out to my house uh, for four or five days leading up to the Leeds race. Okay. Um, and, and that, that's really important. I think, and one of our goals is to kind of put together a little bit of a manual that will help folks who are just getting started, have hmm. a, a frame to work off of. There is sort of, some basic things that are helpful to know and understand. It's really important for Greg to let me know when he's shifting because we're both pushing as hard as we can on that chain. We're going to drop a chain pretty pretty easily. Mm. Um, things like that are really important to kind of get on the same page about. And then there's a lot of finesse parts. Uh, uh, understanding cues is really important, as Greg said. So certain things about, especially when I'm tired at the end of a race, if he says, uh, I need you to come over a little bit, then I'm like, well, how much is a little bit? How much is a lot? we come up with a common language. So I use the word bend. Bend is just like, a, I'm going to come over. We're not really turning. We're just going to come left or, or jog right, jog left, that sort of stuff. So I think we're, we're working on coming up with a manual that will help kind of streamline the language there, but there's no nothing that can replace reps. Uh, and that's obviously a challenge, Greg being in California, me being on the East Coast. So we were able to build in time to each of the races that we did this year, uh, a, few, a few days prior to the Leeds race, um, a few days prior to the Wisconsin race. And then we built in a little time after the national championships in LA. And then obviously just absolutely the most amazing two and a half weeks, or I guess it was one and a half weeks in Kona, just training every day uh, right there at the, on the Kona course. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, I, I really firmly believe that was a major difference for us going into Tokyo. Not only did we have kind of the finesse that comes with doing those reps, being able to swim in unison. Greg does a great job of not only guiding, you know, just kind of keeping us on the line in the water, but he's actually matching my tempo. He's actually positioning himself. That's in an optimal place for us to move fast. And we figured out a lot of that and, and kind of reaffirmed a lot of that while we were in Kona. And uh, that, again, that, that showed its value uh, with, with us on the uh, course in Tokyo. 
Greg, I mean, why? I know you obviously retired after the 2016 Olympics, uh, kind of moved on, got a got a real job. Why did you decide to come out of retirement? How did Brad convince you to to come out? It was it was not hard for Brad to convince <laughs> me. I've I've always wanted to guide. I think it's one of the coolest things you can do in the sport. Um, I just never really had a straightforward opportunity to do it. And then when I retired, I thought that window had closed. But luckily. I mean, luckily for me, uh, Aaron Scheides earlier in this year, his guide, Ben Collins, mm-hmm. who's a, a friend of mine from training together way back when in Colorado Springs, um, Ben Collins had gotten injured. So Aaron Scheides needed a guide and he reached out to me. Uh, I was lucky to be able to go work with him a little bit before a race in Sarasota and a race in Yokohama, kind of learn a bit how to guide and work with Aaron. Um, and then Ben Collins got healthy. And I was out of a guiding job, but uh, Brad, fortunately for me, at the same time, also needed a new guide. So he reached out to me. Uh, Brad's an awesome guy. Of course, I said yes, pretty much immediately. And yeah, that was that was kind of middle of May. And we were able to start working together end of May. But for me, it's always been, you know, something on the back of my mind that would be super cool to be able to do. And it has been even better than than I imagined. It's hard not to notice too that uh, all of the blind athletes need basic, basically need uh, former Olympians or former almost Olympians or like they're the level of guiding now has just like you have to have Olympians on your team or you're just not going to be able to compete. Do you feel like it's? I mean, I guess I was going to say, do you feel like it's gotten more competitive? But this is your first one. But it seems to me like that's just an example of how it's gotten so competitive, right? I mean, when you have a guy who swims as fast as Brad does, you need somebody who's who has a good background. But then also coming in from, you know, having been a professional triathlete for a long time, there's a lot of the skills that you've honed <laughs> that are critical to be able to work with well, kind of as second nature. And this is, you know, sighting on buoys, having efficient lines around the turn buoys, uh, being able to figure out what's going to be the efficient line, not just for me, but for this dude right by my side. Um, how are we going to get through transition together effectively? So it, it's partly skills. It's partly um, making sure that that aerobically you have the fitness to um, keep up with with Brad, but then also kind of still have that little bit in the tank. So you have the wherewithal to be able to guide effectively while racing at a very high level. But yeah, I mean, as as the caliber of athletes continues to improve and is incredible, it, it's awesome to awesome to see guys like Andy to come in and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun role and you gotta be fast, but uh, it's, it's definitely worth the, worth the kind of effort. Yeah. I was thinking at some point here, we're going to hit a point where there's not a fast enough guy because the guy needs to be like 5% or something fast so that they can talk and, and, and all those cues. And if you guys just keep getting faster and faster, are we going to run out of guides? Yeah. Stay slow. Stay slow. I think that, that's a great point, but I, I think that that would be like a we've we've like we've made it. That'd be awesome if, <laughs> if we can if if I can make Greg tired. That that would be awesome, and that, that would be my goal. So I'm going to continue to work on my fitness to try to make Greg as tired as possible by the end of that race. <laughs> you're, you're you're there, Brad. You're there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Brad, obviously, you had a swimming background kind of before. Uh, I don't know, like the whole accident in. Um, in Iraq, right? Or Afghanistan? It was in Afghanistan. Actually, it was in yeah. Afghanistan. Okay, yeah. Um, you were swam before that, so obviously swimming was kind of the natural thing after that, and you were really, really good at it. Why move over to triathlon when you're already winning? You know, all these sort of Olymp- 
swimming Paralympic medals, when you're setting Paralympic records, you know, why not stay with swimming? Uh, it's a great question. And I actually did already make this transition once before. Uh, okay. When I got, when I finished collegiate swimming in 2006, I definitely was not done being an athlete then, but I was done obviously swimming. And, and I really felt like I, I had done everything in the sport of swimming that I had set out to do. Unfortunately, I spent all four years of college trying to break 16 minutes in the mile and never made it. But I thought that was that was going to be about it for me. Um, I got into triathlon at that point, never really beyond the recreational level, but I really enjoyed racing. Uh, I've always been a very poor cyclist. So it's been something I've been working on for a long, long time, but I really enjoyed the sport. I, I enjoyed at that point what I think a lot of people gravitate towards in the sport of triathlon, the the camaraderie of the group, the fun, the fun aspect of racing, uh, you know, racing at any level can just be a lot of fun, mm -hmm. and whether it's elite or just like your neighborhood race. It's just really cool to get up on Saturday morning, nice and early, get out into the ocean and, and, and then ride your bike and then, you know, dig into a race, whether it's for fourth or 48th, it doesn't really matter. It's just fun to race. So I did a, a bunch of races at that level. I had dreamed of uh, maybe qualifying for um, 70.3 nationals, which back then was in Clearwater, Florida, which is very close to where I grew up. Right. Um, but, uh, I, I, I wasn't able to do that before I lost my vision. So it, it always kind of sat at the back of my mind. Um, after the Rio games, uh, once again, I felt like I had accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish in swimming. I, I won the three freestyles. I set that world record. I did that the, the way that the program worked. I set the world record at the very end of my program. I was done with Rio and I just thought like, I don't, there's nothing else for me here. And, um, but also I wasn't done being an athlete. So I was kind of like, well, what, what new challenge can there be? And I had an email in my inbox from Mark Sortino, who was the national team coach at the time. And so I went out to a camp in 2017 and found exactly what I had found in 2007, just an amazing group of people really challenging themselves to do crazy things. And, uh, I really sucked at it at the beginning and just thought, well, how fun is it going to be to kind of work my way up? And that's exactly how it's unfolded. I mean, race after race, I've made little improvements, figured out how to get my wets off, wetsuit off a little bit quicker or how to make tweaks to my tether to get a little bit faster and a little bit faster. And here we are uh, th uh, three years later, or excuse me, four years later with a gold medal. But also I think we look at that race and we and both Greg and I can point out a lot of areas where we can make improvement. And, hmm. and that's kind of what it's all about to me is to kind of continue to find those, those seconds that add up to minutes of just making yourself a little bit better. What was the hardest part um, coming over from swimming? Cause I would assume the swimming wasn't too hard. What was the hardest part uh, to kind of learn or get better at? Well, uh, kind of uh, it's always all three, I think, but <laughs> what, what was frustrating actually at the very beginning was I, the swimming was not the strength that I thought it would be. Huh. I think maybe it was arrogance or whatever, but coming out of the pool, I thought, well, at least I've got swimming to lean on. But my first couple races, I was not, I was not gapping anybody. Uh, I was coming out of the water kind of right with everybody and, uh, you know, not really being able to lean on that strength or maximize that strength. So that actually was a hard part. Uh, Greg kind of alluded to it earlier. You know, there's a lot of things you have to do from the pool to the open water to make it work. I had to pick up my turnover quite a bit. I had to uh, increase my fitness. I was used to a four and a half minute race versus mm. now an hour long race and, and, a, and a full 10 minutes in the water at 750 meters. So there were things I had to tweak and it took me a while to start to maximize that strength. And I still actually think there's probably another 20 seconds we can, we can gain in the water, just kind of working on my distance and my fitness. 
Um, but finally, you know, being able to kind of let that be a strength. Um, cycling has always been a struggle for me. And I think I had, I was really in a bit of a cycling rut. Greg's actually helped me bust out of that, uh, helping me find some things in training that I've been able to tweak that I'm excited about uh, to maybe kind of turn that into, instead of a place where I'm bleeding five minutes, a place where I'm holding a lead and maybe even gaining a little bit of time on some of the other athletes. And then, um, so I think those were kind of the two big struggles is, uh, you know, finding that strength in the, in the water and then not bleeding quite as much time mm. in the bike. And, and now it's finally coming together. You keep saying uh, that Greg has made some suggestions in your training. What, what, what does your training look like? Like how much do you train? Well, not right now, maybe since your post victory tour, but usually how much did you guys both train going into Tokyo? Well, I'll, Greg was training a lot more than me, actually. Um, I was training about 20 hours a week. Um, it's been difficult to kind of, especially with COVID, try to keep all of like everything in balance with school and all of that. And um, Greg was uh, able to help kind of incentivize me or push me to, to increase the volume just a little bit over the last six weeks. Uh, but more importantly was to, was to train a little bit more mindfully on the bike. And an example is was uh, training in erg mode uh, is something I didn't think I could do. Uh, I run mm. into a lot of accessibility problems with my training. So making sure that the apps that I use between training peaks or Wahoo or whatever it is, sometimes those apps don't work for me and the screen reader I have on my phone. Um, Greg actually had the patience to sit with me and kind of go through the phone and figure out how can I reliably get from one mode to the to another and then how do I incorporate that into my, my training? And, and erg mode actually really helped me smooth out my stroke a little bit and hmm. helped me figure out how to start riding uh, consistently at threshold and then and then, then doing some sets afterward that are they're bumping it up and increase the intensity. So he helped me kind of reframe the mindset, but also helped me with some of the tech involved. And that really pro uh, proved very valuable, uh, especially in the last six weeks. So do you do all your training? Mean, sorry, wait, do you do all your training on an indoor trainer? Uh, almost exclusively. Okay. Um, I, I was trying to train it that way anyway, but then when we, when we moved with COVID, I wasn't, I moved here to Princeton. I didn't know anybody, uh, right. and I wasn't really keen on jumping out and meeting people in the middle of COVID. So I've just been doing almost all of it on a treadmill, all my run training on treadmill and all my uh, bike training on a, on a trainer that oh, okay. will look to trade, change that over the next couple of seasons and build in some lengthy camps with Greg and all that sort of stuff. Got it. Oh, sorry, Greg. You were about to say also what your what what training kind of looks like. I just was curious about the the indoor aspect of it all. Oh yeah, I was just gonna add in. I think one of my favorite parts about training recently was Brad and I would get on a Saturday morning call a lot of mm. times and do a long bike session together. Um, just because I was just hoping that there would be some sort of distraction for Brad because sitting on an indoor trainer can be super boring <laughs> and I, I could never imagine yes. doing it like that, um, doing a hard session. So it was really fun, I think, for me to be able to kind of spend that extra hour and a half or so kind of just talking to Brad and learn more about about him, how he's thinking about approaching these races and then also, you know, working together to execute a, a hard workout because even even for me with work and stuff, it's hard to fit in something that's that's super great. So that was a fun aspect to our training recently. But yeah, likewise, getting back in shape uh, after taking a couple of years off swimming and and biking and stuff was definitely a challenge this year. <laughs> but I was glad it glad it all worked out. Okay, and uh, and then now, obviously, so now you're in Princeton and back at school. Is that going to impact your training? Kind of how do you balance it all moving forward now since you just started your program again? 
Yeah, I, I think it's going to impact it. I think there's no way that it won't. But mm-hmm. uh, I think the good news is I only have one more year worth of coursework. Okay. So come uh, May of 22, um, the demands on my the, the immediate demands on my time will be a lot more manageable than they are currently. And that actually times out well. I can kind of take a little bit of uh, take a little bit of the volume down over the next six months, really focus on school. And then uh, come spring of next year, we can really turn our focus to Paris, which will be awesome. Uh, it also times well with the season. Like once school ends, I'll be able to kind of really focus on getting in some good racing next summer um, and start to lay the groundwork uh, for Paris. So it's it's always difficult to manage it all, you know, and I'm, I'm really grateful that Visa was as supportive of Greg taking the time off uh, that, uh, that, that we needed to get into the Kona race. So we all face our own kind of struggles maintaining a professional life as well as a sport life. But um, you know, that's kind of the name of the game. And I think it's timed out okay over the next kind of three years. What is your PhD in again? Uh, national security policy. National so my security. goal is to learn about how we utilize the military and what the relationship between our warriors and society are. And then hopefully with this degree, I can go back to the Naval Academy where I was teaching before um, and kind of make a long-term career out of teaching at the Naval Academy. And I do think that that's a great that's a fertile ground for me to continue to, to, to keep things in balance, teach, uh, teach half the day and then, you know, work out half the day and maybe stay, <laughs> stay as involved in triathlon as possible. Got it. Okay. So it's all, I mean, there's not, it's not all about triathlon. It's not all about school. It's, it's a, a mix of everything. It sounds like. Yeah. I think that's one of the attractive things about triathlon mm-hmm. is that especially like when you look at the broader community, everyone's kind of got, you know, they got their sport game and then they've got their professional life and their side hustle and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, work-life balance is important. My big goal for the next three years is actually not go to Paris. It's actually to get my wife to race. My wife has <laughs> jumped full force into training with me in our garage on a treadmill and on a trainer 24-7, but she doesn't race. At least Greg and I get the gratification of going out there and, and you know, racing and winning and things. Uh, my wife just trains and I, I don't, it's, I always look at that. Like, I don't know how you do it. So we got to get her in a race and I, I, that's, that'll be an exciting thing for us to do in the next season or so. Okay. All right. So you have, you have multiple goals here with triathlon. Yeah. yeah. And we've got to make, uh, got to make people appreciate tandem racing. I think that's another thing. Oh, yeah. Gotta, <laughs> yeah. Gotta get that down. It's so much fun. It's been, <laughs> I, I grew up riding, doing long tandem rides with, with my parents and my family. When I was living over in England, but this was the first time getting to ride and race on the front, and it's been super cool. Um, but I think there's just not enough folks riding tandems out there. Got to get them. Got to get them going. Gotta is there tandem, tandem cool. racing? Yeah, is there tandem racing outside of there, guiding? Yeah, there used to be, I think, a little bit more than there is now. But I think now a lot of the tandem racing is focused around around either like really long distance riding or or the para sports. Hmm. Kelly, we need your help in making tandem and cool. Yeah. Tandem and cool. All right. Tell yeah, me what's tell cool about it. Yeah. Two times what? of people, two times of fun. That's what I say. <laughs> but we go so fast. That's why it's so awesome. Like we're we're going really. I mean, Greg, we were like some of those Kona rides. I, I it was fun to like. Greg is like, you know, we just went twenty five miles in fifty minutes or whatever. Like this is my fastest ride ever, and it's a uh, you know, it's just you're out there cruising and you're cruising at really high speed. So I think. That's what makes it really fun. And then especially when you get into a tight course like that, look at the way that Greg is handling that tandem on that tight of a course. That's really a kind of cool aspect, translating what you do on a smaller bike onto Mm -hmm. a tandem, which, you know, feels essentially like handling a bus, but he's whipping it around a 180 
Uh, we actually whip around some so fast sometimes I feel like it's like being in a jet, like G forces, like. Whoa. It was it was hard to learn. I think initially, uh, like the first couple rides in a tandem are always an entirely new experience. But then after that, it um it gets really fun pretty quickly, and it was super gratifying to finally kind of roll at, at Tokyo and really feel super comfortable on that bike and and be going pretty fast. It's a uh, it's, it's it's a really fun experience. Yeah, I never thought before until, you know, it's the Paralympics uh, that you guys get to your is, once you get up, once the momentum gets started, you have two people pushing power. So you're really you can get going really, really fast. Basically, yeah, a lot of acceleration. The only downside is uh, hills are harder because you're right. a heavier bike, but that downhills are really fast. Uh, <laughs> 2019, the Luzon course, there was a pretty substantial um, hill and we were getting up north of 55 miles an hour, I think, on the tandem, which was a lot of fun. And we weren't even pedaling, which was a lot of even more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you said, obviously, um, you kind of both have gone back to your regular lives, give or take right now. And then you're looking forward to, to Paris. Is that sort of the next big thing on the horizon? What's the what's the plan from here? Well, we really haven't hashed it all out. I, I mm -hmm. think that, you know, we sat in the airport on the way out, kind of looking at our gear list and looking at what we want to do with the bike and that that sort of stuff. So we're really... We wanted to make sure that we uh, uh, took stock of all the lessons learned coming out of this race. Uh, we're get, we have in mind the tweaks that we want to make for the next race, but I think we're looking at race for race over the next couple seasons. We just want to keep kind of focus on one race at a time, making sure that we're kind of incrementally getting better and better. Um, I, with all the uncertainty around COVID, it's hard to plan a season at this point. Um, so we're going to probably just kind of drag our toes a little bit wait for the schedule to stabilize and then figure out what we're going to do next summer. And then again, take it one season at a time and just try to kind of remain as high as possible in the rankings, get in some good racing, get in some good learning, um, and then try to set ourselves up for a good race. And obviously Paris is the prize at the end of the tunnel. So we'll kind of go, go at that, but I don't want to be thinking about Paris too much when we have, okay. you know, probably a dozen races we have to get through, uh, between now and then. Makes sense. Um, Greg, I assume that's also your plan, obviously, since you guys have to have to race together. <laughs> well, Brad doesn't have to race with me. He gets to pick whoever, whoever he likes. Right. So I better be nice in all these interviews, be respectful. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm out the door. <laughs> um, no, I'm excited. It, it's super fun to race out there. Um, and yeah, just taking it one one race at a time. I think there's a lot of incremental improvements. And especially if we want to make a title defense, we need to be focused on making sure that each race between between now and Paris kind of counts that we're learning something every step of the way. So looking forward to that process. Yeah, we got lucky in some respects uh, with the, the Tokyo course. Uh, mm -hmm. it, being a non-wetsuit swim was a huge plus for, for us, uh, really uh, enabling us to make that jump in the water. Um, I think it's important to note that our biggest competitor, Dave Ellis, had a major bike problem right. at the beginning of the bike course. So while we can kind of le lean back on the laurels and say it was great to win, um, we, we really need to gear up and uh, be ready to race Dave when his, he can get his bike to work. So um, we really need to d dial in on those those small things. Um, I honestly think like while I had an awesome swim and a great bike, my run split in Tokyo was not super great. So that, that's a good thing to admit. Lots of room for improvement there. So I, I really want to kind of work on those things as we move forward over the next couple seasons. And again, use racing as a way to kind of check us, check our fitness and, and make sure that we're on target to have a great race in Paris. Right. 
When I was like uh, looking at both your guys' stories, you both have these like super interesting backgrounds. You've done all kinds of crazy things, been all over the world. So I want to know, was this, what is the coolest thing? Was this up there, like winning in Tokyo? Uh, hands down for me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, swim racing in the Paralympics has been a lot of fun. It's been incredible. Right. And I, and, and um, I learned a lot in swimming and I matured a lot as a blind person in the sport of swimming coming from London into Rio. Um, I, I really matured as an athlete. I think Rio was probably some of my best work purely as an athlete in terms of the amount of strength and mobility and everything I was able to optimize to kind of swim as fast as I did in Rio. Um, but this was way more fun because the race like unfolds over a long period of time. I actually have an idea of what's going on. When I'm swimming in the pool, I have no idea. I'm just racing myself. Right. Um, that's not the case here. I'm, I'm right next to Greg the whole time. We're both communicating back and forth the whole time. We have an idea of what the race course looks like. Um, the, the, despite COVID, the spectatorship in, in the, on the ground in Tokyo was awesome. The uh, finish line was awesome. The, the podium was incredible. So this was one of my favorite sport experiences, hands down, for sure. And again, I'm really grateful uh, for a lot of different people who made it happen, especially Greg uh, and my wife, Sarah. Right. Yeah, likewise. I've always done <laughs> kind of individual sports, and this was super fun to be on a team with Brad and go out there and have the race that we did. Um, to be able to execute like that on, on a big stage and, and see that happen is, is special at any point in time. But to be able to do it with somebody somebody else, especially somebody that I kind of respect and admire as much as Brad, made that moment definitely even more special. It's hard to hard to top that from a sporting perspective as far as just a moment of pure happiness. It was like, boom, we did it. Awesome team. Love the dynamic. I mean, they, we were there with an incredible Team USA. So there was a huge, yeah. cool team kind of behind us to support us as well. And then also just the unlikelihood and sort of unexpectedness of it all was incredible. Like the beginning of this year, wasn't even thinking about doing triathlons. And then later on, barely thinking beyond just qualifying for the Paralympic Games. And it really wasn't until a couple weeks before that, that it was like, man, you know, if we have a good race, we might be able to bring home the gold. So for yeah. that evolution to happen and then work out like that, unparalleled for me. Yeah, Kelly, at the beginning of the season, I I really wasn't sure if I was going to even make right. the team. Aaron Scheides has been in this sport a really, really long time. And he's someone I've looked up to for a long time. He helped me kind of get into it uh, a few, uh, you know, three, four years ago. And he's just been a mainstay. And then Kyle Kuhn won the Yokohama race at the beginning of the season. Kind of uh, that was unexpected. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have it's a major uphill battle to even make the team. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we we kind of got, you know, essentially blown out in leads. Like we were not really in the race after the bike and uh, we were seventh. And so it's, you know, way, way away. My my ranking, my highest ranking as of late with, was eighth. Uh, and then we won Wisconsin and I was like, holy cow, we just won with that was, that was incredible. And then, like you said, like Greg said, we kind of started thinking like, you know, Hey, if, if everything goes our way, if everything goes our way in Tokyo, we might have a shot at winning this thing. And then when it started going our way, it's like, holy cow, this is nuts. <laughs> I remember on the back corner when the coaches called P your P one with a one forty five gap, I was like, holy cow. <laughs> You gotta be kidding me! 
It did seem like the whole team was having a lot of fun too, though. Uh, the uh, the commentators kept saying on TV, the 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 rambunctious U.S. spectator yeah. squad is is causing trouble. That's what they kept they kept saying. Yeah. You guys were. Yeah. I think we hit full force for Kendall's race uh, on <laughs> Sunday. That was, I think, Kendall Gretsch's victory uh, on Sunday will go down as one of the greatest Paralympic movements uh, moments ever. Uh, yeah. She was just mowing that girl down for the whole race. And then to sweep by her with like five meters to go was just nuts. And I think that was where we also hit our stride as a cheering squad as well, uh, cheering for Kendall in that, that race on Sunday. So that was incredible. <laughs> Well, well, thank you so much for talking to us, guys, and uh, and hopefully you get a little more victory tour in here before too much too much work happens. Absolutely, thank you, Kelly. Thanks. Thanks to Brad, Greg, and Laura for the chat, and thanks to all of you. If you like what you hear, leave us a review or share with a friend. Keep training and keep listening. <laughs>